Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development across our state. I'm your host, Jeff Brent, and this podcast is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Like death and taxes, another inevitable facet of life is we all got to eat and drink. As a matter of fact, food processing and production is rapidly expanding and evolving sector across the country. There are some important steps communities can take ahead of pursuing a food and beverage project to help them become more competitive. Jay Garner is the president and founder of Garner Economics LLC, an economic development and site location consulting practice headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Jay is a leader and innovator in the economic development profession, having served for more than 40 years as an award-winning economic developer, Chamber of Commerce CEO, and site location professional. Jay also is a founding member and past chairman of the board for the Site Selectors Guild. He also is a past chairman for the International Economic Development Council, the largest economic development professional trade organization in the world. Jay Garner, welcome to Mississippi Prospects. Thank you, Jeff. So let's start with the size and capacity of the U.S. food and beverage industry. Now, how large of a sector is this and where does Mississippi rank? as a food and beverage processor right now? Well, in the United States alone, it is a $2.7 trillion industry, which is just huge, right? And uh, the GDP of it in the United States alone is $265 billion a year. Now that industry, the food and beverage sector, employs 2 million people Uh, in the United States. Where does Mississippi uh, rank in all of this? Well, Mississippi ranks 43rd by the number of establishments, 259. Um, I wouldn't have much pause about that because you are a smaller state population-wise, but 259 food and beverage establishments is pretty strong. And then by employment, you rank 28th out of 50 states uh, with 24,000 people employed in the food and beverage sector. So per capita, then, we would actually probably rank better being a population of about 3 million people. Sure. If you want to break it down that way by per capita, uh, uh, absolutely. And I think the, the, the bigger telling, of course, is the fact that you have that many people, over 24,000 people employed in the food and beverage sector. So if it went away by any uh, chance, um, it would be uh, sorely felt in the state. Can you define for us the food and beverage sector? What type of companies, uh, manufacturers or processors are we talking about? So you're going to have the gamut of everything from uh, what I call protein uh, manufacturers. Those are the folks that process chickens, cattle, uh, hogs. You're going to have the derivatives of that. That's what we call ready to eat. That's where you might take a uh, processed uh, burger and make them into sliders or uh, chicken and make them into chicken nuggets. Then you have the beverage side of it. 
And that's everything from bottling water to uh, beer. Everyone likes beer, I think, uh, <laughs> to uh, distilleries. So, and uh, soft drinks, uh, anything that would be beverage related. So it runs a pretty strong uh, gamut uh, from A to Z. So if we can chew it and drink it, this it's, is it. That's it. That's the food and beverage <laughs> sector. You're exactly right. Let's take a look real quickly at the forecast for growth in this sector in the coming years. Uh, the numbers already are impressive with the $2.7 trillion uh, industry in the U.S. Is there room for growth? There is. In the U.S., um, the powers that be, which would be primarily the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's a federal agency, uh, has a 10-year forecast of overall 5.8% uh, in the United States. Now, the largest growth sectors are animal food manufacturing. There are um, a, a lot of people spend lots of money on their pets and about two thirds of the U.S. population has some form of a pet, whether it's a dog, a cat, a hamster, a goldfish, uh, it's, it's something. So uh, animal food manufacturing, um, uh, large growth, almost 8%. Then you have the what we call the specialty manufacturing. So in this case, Hispanic food is going to have tremendous growth, uh, almost 9%, and that would be bakeries and tortilla manufacturing. Then beverage manufacturing, primarily because of craft beers or seltzer water, something that is consumer generated because, you know, it's all consumer preference. Um, that's going to have about 11.5% growth. The one thing that you can rest assured is that all of this is driven by consumer preference. And what's popular today may not be popular five or 10 years uh, uh, from now. So, you know, I, I, a lot of the infused beverages like with acai berry um, was very popular six, seven, eight years ago, not so popular now. And it's just as a, a consumer preference. Subject to trends like uh, anything that's consumable, uh, you know, whether it's technology, uh, foods. Um, let's let's talk about the project side of this, and and that's also your wheelhouse. You know, having the right infrastructure for a specific industry is obviously key to winning projects in that sector. What are the right ingredients, so to speak, for food and beverage, and why are these important to this sector specifically? Well. Uh, any food and beverage facility, whether they're going to use water in their processing or not, has to have large quantities of water because you have to have water not only for processing, if you're going to have processing as part of it, but you must have it for sanitation. So, and to meet USDA and FDA guidelines, um, all of these companies are focused on food safety and there's a federal law, the food safety modernization act that came out, I believe around 2016, 2017, that really mandates food safety. So you have to have water. Then you have to have a place to put the water um, that's not being used in the uh, processing side of it. So you're going to have to have a wastewater system that allows that. Obviously, you got to have a workforce 
in the region. And when we're doing work on behalf of a company, we're typically looking at about a 30 to 45 minute drive time from that location that they're considering for a site. What makes a good site for a food and beverage project? Is there something you're looking for on the front end? Um, we, we like to see some sort of uh, four-lane accessibility or close to it. That doesn't mean an interstate. It could be a, a U.S. or a state highway. But, um, uh, you know, unless you're a hermit, uh, then everyone knows that energy costs are absolutely through the roof, right? So uh, if you have a four-lane road, if it's closer to the site, to that point of egress and ingress uh, with that uh, uh, four-lane road, that saves a little bit on energy costs. Food and beverage companies, by and large, have very low profit margins, very low. And so they do their best, you know, to squeeze pennies out of a nickel. And so the cost consideration, then you must have um, efficient energy costs. So electric or gas can't be exorbitant. I think Mississippi uh, stands very well in that capacity with your different energy providers whether it be electricity or gas, and the competitiveness on it. Uh, they always look at workforce capability issues. I know the state has gone through an effort, and we were actually part of a team years ago with Deloitte Consulting that offered some state recommendations, and one of those was in workforce uh, service delivery. And so having a more centralized workforce training effort is a key consideration. Then obviously you have to have the site. In my book, Economic Development is Not for Amateurs, chapter two is called No Product, No Project, which is a phrase that we have trademarked. And what we mean by that is if you don't have a shovel-ready site or an available building that might meet the criteria of a food and beverage company, then you're going to get passed over for a community or a state that does have that site or does have that building. In terms of a building, Jeff, when people ask us about, well, should we do a spec building? Well, you know, we still are in a very hot real estate market. I think it's starting to cool off uh, because of all of the inflation aspects associated with it. But when communities are creating a building and preferably a building in the food and beverage sector, they always say, well, what size? And we say the bigger, the better. Because uh, companies, no matter really what company, whether in, in any kind of manufacturing, but definitely in food and beverage, scale is important. So the, the more output that can come out of that building, then the greater the opportunity uh, to sell that building to a potential food and beverage client. I've uh, had been fortunate to work on a few food and beverage projects in the past. And one thing a consultant relayed to me also is sort of the layout of the building. And they talked about kind of long buildings uh, because of the modern manufacturing process. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how the modern, you know, food processing and beverage processing, why they need these longer buildings? I, I know bigger, but is that helpful if they, if you're trying to identify a potential uh, building or site? Well, I'm not necessarily sure about long, but rectangular is important. And what's it, the reason is because all of these food and beverage um, projects have some form of extensive conveyor system in the building. So here's a little um, trick to remember on a building. Rectangular, very important. You have to have a high ceiling height, 34 feet uh, at the very least, because all of the utilities are in the ceiling and then they drop down from the ceiling to the floor. The floor has a you know uh, an abundance of floor drains for the sanitation uh, of it. So they're always washing down the walls and the floors. What about the walls? The walls need to be non-porous. So they need to be stainless, like you would see in an industrial kitchen, or ceramic, which is not porous. Uh, again, to sanitize, wipe down the, uh, the the walls. So those are the key. You, you also need to have, you know, I, I look at, and I'm going to talk about this at, at the conference, you really need to have excess water capacity from your uh, water system of about a half a million gallons a day. Uh, that would be more, you would need more if you were trying to recruit a beverage uh, processor because any beverage uh, operation is going to take potable water. Talk about the talent and workforce needs. You, you made a mention of it earlier. And, you know, what, is, uh, what are your clients looking for as far as available workforce? And perhaps a community may not have that specific skill set, but they might also have access to maybe some transferable skills and where would those come from? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, um, again, in my book, we, we have those two trademark phrases. I mentioned no product, no project, um, because you can't sell from an empty wagon. The second that we trademarked, and it is a chapter in our book called talent is the new currency uh, because uh, every company is looking at the availability of talent. And we live in an environment now uh, where it is going to be more challenging to, to get uh, uh, talent uh, based on an aging demographic. So typical food and beverage uh, occupations, you know, you're going to see the kind that are specifically for uh, food and beverage, like food batch makers or meat poultry and fish cutters and trimmers and meat packers. But then you're going to see a lot of the transferable kinds, such as industrial truck and tractor operators, um, uh, inspectors, testers, maintenance people, uh, operators and tenders. So it, it just ran, runs the whole gamut, mechanics, all of those. And, you know, another thing that we love to do on behalf of the client is we love to look at locations with a nearby military installation and with the separation of those uh, servicemen and women from that, that installation because 
many of those people have transferable skills from the military that apply to in the civilian sector. Now, in your presentation, you also mentioned several trends, including automated and vertical farming, plant-based meat alternatives, liquor, even the cannabis industry. How are these changing the food and beverage industry? And, you know, I think especially the plant-based meat alternatives, I've also seen proteins being grown in a lab. Um, it's fascinating how science is changing a lot of this uh, this sector. It really is. And you know, it goes back again to consumer preference. A lot of people just don't want to eat uh, traditional meat uh, for a, a multitude of reasons. Um, and so, you know, years ago uh, that you saw the creation of, uh, of meat that uh, was not protein-based meat, you know, from vegetables, basically, like the Impossible Burger. And over the years, the food scientists have worked to improve the taste of that. So you, you see more and more of that occur, especially with a younger population base that is much more health conscious than, say, um, baby boomers, some Generation X, some Generation Y. So Generation Z uh, and the millennials, much more health conscious uh, overall. Vertical farming, uh, instead of seeing corporate farming with 500 or 1,000 acres or more, you know, I just uh, saw a, a another vertical farming uh, announcement in Georgia with 125,000 square feet, but it's going to equate to about a 500-acre uh, farm. And so, you know, there's all those efficiencies of scale in vertical farming. So all of that uh, is is a necessity uh, for sustainability purposes, but also as it relates to automated farming, you just are having more and more of a challenge with farmers able to hire help that can pick crops or plow the fields. So the basics, uh, they're hurting at, at every level uh, from field to uh, processing. They, they, they are, and that's the reason why you will continue to see automation uh, and new processes as it relates to uh, providing food on the table for the consumer. In the cannabis industry, rapidly growing in certain areas, Mississippi uh, recently passed uh, legislation allowing medical cannabis. Uh, are you seeing this as a growth industry as the they continue to find their way? Obviously, there's probably a lot of um, regulations in the way. Well, what we have is uh, about 30 states that allow recreational marijuana. Uh, and what makes me think that in time it's going to be decriminalized is because a, a large number of the multinational food and beverage companies are investing in cannabis companies, uh, you know, that uh, either allow for 
recreational marijuana or for medical marijuana or the CBD, which takes out the high levels of THC in marijuana. So why are they doing that? Because uh, at some point, they're going to utilize the byproduct of cannabis as an infusion in food products, whether it's in a drink, whether it's in a food, whatever. Just like um, you see all of these CBD uh, firms now that are using it for some sort of health byproduct uh, effort. So, you know, typically, I if if there was going to be decriminalization decriminalization of marijuana, you would think it would happen now with a uh, Democratic president and a Democratic controlled Congress, but it's not on the radar to happen. And so. At what point will it happen? I don't know. Um, you know, five years ago, all the experts said it would happen in just a few years, and we're past that now. Um, I still think it's going to happen within 10 years, but but who knows? There There is a lot of pushback on the decriminalization of, of marijuana because uh, for recreational use, the marijuana of today with the THC levels is not the same as it was 25 years ago. It's a much higher level um, and it has uh, more repercussions on a high than say just alcohol or what marijuana used to be some years ago. So there, there will be some pushback, but you have very few states now that don't even have, uh, that, that aren't allowing medical marijuana. So I think it's coming. Want to go off topic uh, just to wrap things up here and give you a moment to talk about your Amazon best-selling book. That is, economic development is still not for amateurs, and that's edition two, right? That's that's right. So the first one, which came out in August of 2020, economic development is not for amateurs. Uh, we sold uh, a little over 4,000 copies of that. We wrote it during the pandemic. We wanted to update it in a post-pandemic world, and we did. And the second edition came out in March of this year, March 2022, called Economic Development is Still Not for Amateurs. And we added two new chapters, uh, one on demystifying the site selection process and the other one on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion called Y'all Means Y'all. Uh, and we've already sold over 2,000 copies uh, in our of, a, of that second edition. So it is meant for those that are engaged in economic development policy. So mayors, county commissioners, state legislators, uh, federal officials, chamber of commerce uh, leadership, those who are not doing economic development as their day job. Amazon calls it a short read. Uh, that was by design. It's only 90 pages long. And because we knew that for that audience, we did not want to write a textbook. We wanted to have something that was going to be very practical and utilized uh, by those policymakers. And the uh, response has been uh, phenomenal. I wrote it, co-wrote it uh, with a former client of mine, um, I'm a baby boomer. He's a millennial. We have nothing in common. 
and yet we've become uh, best friends because we complement each other with different perspectives. And so, and that's Ross Patton. And so uh, Ross wrote about entrepreneurship, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and branding, uh, which we call the charm factor. And I wrote about everything else uh, related to leadership and product and talent uh, and execution of uh, policy. So uh, check it out on Amazon and uh, thank you for the plug. Jay Garner helping us put food on our tables and creating jobs around the country. Thanks for joining us on Mississippi Prospects. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Entergy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Mississippi Power, MWB, the Tennessee Valley Authority, Atmos Energy, the Area Development Partnership, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, Madison County Economic Development Authority, the Mississippi Research Consortium, the North Mississippi Industrial Development Association, and Rankin First Economic Development Authority, and produced by MWB Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDCinfo. Info.